The scripture lesson this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. And I'll read through verse 5 of chapter 2. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen, my, seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again give you thanks for your word. And we pray that you would strengthen us by it now, that you would meet us in our weakness and frailty, that you would lift up any drooping hands and strengthen any weak knees. Indeed, may your word be a word of exhortation and encouragement to us this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some years ago, on a Sunday evening at a pastor friend's house, a conversation was taking place among those gathered there with a friend who was, who was at some stage in the dating process and maybe engaged by this point uh, to the girl that he would eventually uh, marry. And he was saying how he wanted the relationship to, you know, kind of always be fireworks. That the, the feelings of excitement that he had, that his experience would basically be to go from one peak to the next. Always going up with no lulls or valleys in between. And he was kind of wondering why that couldn't be the case. Well, it didn't take long for us to tell him that that simply just wasn't realistic. That life isn't that way. Even with the one person you love more than anyone else on the planet. Relationships and life aren't always mountaintop experiences. And that's, of course, true of the Christian life as well. Sometimes there are those services where rousing psalms and hymns are sung and you wish it would never end. Or you hear a sermon or listen to teaching that's so compelling, that's so rich, that you, you just know that your soul is being filled. But those experiences aren't necessarily commonplace. Even if, if we can make a case that we have high points throughout our liturgical year that are especially meaningful, even as we have uh, coming up with Ascension and Pentecost, or even as we celebrated our 15th anniversary as a congregation last week. Inevitably, there's a bit of a letdown. Take into account the experience of Peter, James, and John on the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured, and that Moses and Elijah were also there. And it's no wonder that Peter was eager to build some tabernacles to build some tents to keep the experience going. Who in their right mind wouldn't want to have a mountaintop camp out with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? You know, just imagine the, the campfire conversations that could be had. But instead, well, they have to go back down the mountain and deal with demons and impotent disciples and hear Jesus tell again of his going to Jerusalem to be betrayed, killed, and resurrected 
on the third day. We might prefer the mountaintop, but the life of going back down the mountain is more realistic with its valleys, difficulties, and trials. And we don't get to stay here with Jesus you know, when we come to Mount Zion on the Lord's Day, but are sent back down, sent back out to a life of service, a life of obedience to His Word. Of course, He prepares us and strengthens us and directs us for that calling for which we ought to be continually grateful. But back to regular life we must go, something of which the Apostle Paul also knew. And perhaps we can say that as the Apostle is continuing to direct the Colossian church and us in the truth, directing them along the path to maturity, that he, yet, uh, he provides yet again another foundational word of encouragement for them. Arguably, the next pericope, the next section of Paul's letter that forms a cohesive unit is chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, and verse 5, particularly as it relates to Paul's ministry and beginning and ending with the apostles rejoicing. One scholar ably shows that there are two sets of chiasms in these verses found in verses, uh, chapter 1, 24 to 29 and 2, 1 through 5, respectively, though carrying some overlapping themes between them. However, because this letter is so theologically dense, more so than some of Paul's other letters, we're going to continue to take Paul's teaching in more digestible bites, at least for this week and next. A quick overview of the structure, we see the chiastic pattern emerge with the apostles' suffering in verse 24, mirrored by his struggles in verse 29. In verses 25 and 26, Paul speaks of his ministry of making known the mystery. And then in verse 28, we read of his ministry of proclamation. And then in the center, in verse 27, we read of Paul making known the abundance of the glory. So setting that briefly before you, let's begin to work uh, through the text. And, and what are some of the details that we find in verse 25? Well, a few perplexing ones if we stop and think about it. Paul begins by saying, Now I rejoice in sufferings on your behalf. Paul's first word is now which is his way of connecting his own circumstances to all the marvelous teaching he's been conveying to the Colossians, truth which Paul's faith also needs. And he says he's actually rejoicing in the sufferings. Well, that doesn't sound like the typical response to suffering. How can Paul say this? Well, again, because of truth in Christ, the truth in Christ that he's been expounding upon thus far. But Paul also understands that suffering is a sign of salvation of being in the kingdom, that it's a point of identification with Christ who also suffered. The king suffered. The king's followers were also suffered. Jesus prepared his disciples for this reality, which is now Paul's own experience. We might even say that Paul's suffering is further validation of the genuineness of his apostolic ministry. But notice that the suffering is for the sake of the Colossians, a people whom Paul has yet to meet in person, and if that's the case, then how can he be suffering for them? You know, Paul's language conveys a substitutionary suffering that's taking place. He's enduring some measure of suffering so that they don't have to. And as Paul goes on to mention, his experience is on behalf of the church, the body of Christ. The ideas of on behalf of you and on behalf of the body parallel one another. The Colossians are part of the church, the body of Christ. And so whatever sufferings Paul is undergoing on behalf of the church he's also undergoing on behalf of the Colossians. And notice how that connects these Colossians to the wider church, which would also be a subtle point of encouragement to them. Paul's substitutionary suffering, what, what might that entail? Well, perhaps the best way to understand it is that Paul is 
He's drawing the enemy fire and focus to himself, which allows the church to continue on in relative peace. You know, Paul takes on the hostility, which shields the church to a certain degree. You know, consider some of the great heroes of the past, the great warriors or champions in, in various armies, such as Odysseus or Hector or Diomedes, and how they could take on more of the enemy at once, enabling the ordinary soldiers then to battle more effectively. Well, that might be something of the image here. Or consider Christ himself, who in John's account of the betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, specifically portrays Jesus as putting himself between the mob that came out with Judas and his disciples. You know, where Adam failed to get between his bride and the enemy in the Garden of Eden, Jesus succeeds in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Paul is imitating the Savior in this regard in his ministering to Christ's bride, the church. Like Savior, like Apostle. But Paul seems to say something even more perplexing in verse 24 when he refers to fulfilling what is lacking of the afflictions of the Christ in my body. What was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Does this somehow diminish Christ's saving work as some have interpreted this verse to mean? No, not at all. First of all, the word that the ESV renders affliction is not a term that's used to refer to Christ's sufferings in relation to his salvific work. Second, the word that Paul uses here is commonly more translated tribulation, as it is so rendered in Matthew 13, 31, upon the lips of Jesus, and then three times by him in Matthew 24, in verses 9, 21, and 29. And what tribulation is Jesus referring to in Matthew 24? Well, the period of time between Pentecost and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. When is Paul writing his letter to the Colossians? Well, sometime in that window, likely in the late 50s or early 60s. So when we interpret the word, uh, the term tribulation, that should help us to have a clear understanding of what Paul means. But still, how can Paul say something is lacking or deficient in relation to Christ? Well, let's come at it this way. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom in his coming, didn't he? And when there's a change of kingdoms, when there's a change of rule, what happens? We get tribulation or affliction. Things are difficult. So Jesus started the tribulation, but there is a fullness yet to be achieved in the destruction of the temple and the old covenant in AD 70. And who were the instruments for that? Well, of course, the Roman army, but also the apostles in their ministry of the gospel, as they're, they're taking the gospel throughout the world, throughout the Roman Empire, as well as the church. See, what Jesus begins, the church finishes. And so Paul isn't taking anything away from the work of Christ, but is accurately describing his experience and the church's experience at this point in history. Well, we could linger even longer in this opening verse. There's, there's still quite a bit here to consider. But let's, let's move on to verse 25, where Paul gives more detail about the commission that he's received. Of which I, I became a minister, a deacon, according to the stewardship of God, the one having been given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Paul refers to himself again as a minister, again as a deacon, just as he did in verse 23. Again, showing us the inter, how interconnected Paul's letter continues to be. And, and then he notes the, the stewardship of God. That's, that's the word stewardship. It's a word that's related to the management of a household. 
It's the term that Jesus uses of the manager in his parable in Luke 16. And it's also used by Paul in other letters. Now, with, the, with all that's going on here, I wonder if, there's, if there isn't some type of underlying typology of the patriarch Joseph that we're supposed to be catching. You know, Paul's in prison, and then he's also a household manager, and he's soon going to mention the Gentiles, since he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And Joseph went from prison to household manager in the Gentile nation of Egypt. Joseph's imprisonment, his humiliation, eventually resulted in exaltation. So perhaps that's another reason that Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings because he knows that glory is coming. Exaltation is coming. So Paul's been given this position, this work, and what the ESV renders to make the Word of God fully known is more literally to fulfill the Word of God. How can Paul claim to do that? That sounds like something we read uh, Matthew saying of Jesus in his gospel, that Jesus came to fulfill the Scriptures. Well, it's quite possible that Paul understands the manner in which his ministry mirrors Christ's ministry, And that as Christ fulfilled the word, the promises of God, so does Paul, as he is a minister of the gospel, fulfilling the apostolic commission bestowed upon him by Christ. And the word of God, the gospel that that Paul proclaims and which he describes in this opening chapter is a power let loose in the world. And it's going to have a fulfilling effect. God's word does not return to him void. One scholar even surmises that Paul understands his epistles to be part of finishing the scriptures, of writing the Bible. Can't be too dogmatic about that, but interesting to think about. Well, then in verse 26, Paul continues saying, The mystery, the one having been concealed from the ages and from the generations, but now he has revealed to his saints. Now, what's a mystery? Well, we immediately think of something along the lines of a whodunit. You know, like Agatha Christie or the Hardy Boys, but that's not the term uh, that that's not the meaning that Paul, how he's using the term. A mystery has to do with things hidden that have now been revealed. But more specifically, to whom has the mystery been revealed? The saints. Who are the saints? Well, they're the Christians, believers, those who've been baptized. Paul has already referred to the Colossians as saints in his letter. And what does it mean to be a saint? You know, to have sanctuary access. Let's connect the dots a bit more. What is fundamental to the mystery is that the things in the sanctuary, the things that men could not behold in the Holy of Holies, have now been revealed. When was sanctuary access lost? Well, with Adam and Eve when they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, when they were alienated from God, even as we considered last week in relation to what Paul describes in verse 21. But now through the reconciling work of Christ, as proclaimed in the gospel through his blood, sanctuary access has been regained. Still more, we have access into the Holy of Holies. The veil was torn, the veil is gone, and we have a direct path in and through Jesus. And what's in the sanctuary? Glory, the riches of the glory, the abundance of the glory. Verse 27 to whom God willed to make known the riches, the abundance of the glory of this mystery in the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory. Paul adds another layer to what he's expressing, referring to the inclusion of the Gentiles as the saints, as those who have sanctuary access. God's purposes aren't limited to the Jews, but they embrace the entire world. And what is glory connected to in Scripture? We we asked this question already in in relation to what we studied in verse 11 a few weeks ago. Glory is connected to the Holy Spirit. Central to what Paul is saying here has to do with the gift, the riches, the abundance that comes with the Holy Spirit. 
which is a foretaste of the future glory now experienced and known in the present. And the Holy Spirit is a down payment of the glory, if you will. And what does Paul go on to say? Christ in you. How did Christ indwell the saints in Colossae? How does he indwell us? By the Holy Spirit. And the apostle adds at the end of the verse, the hope of the glory. We have glory now in Christ by the Spirit. And Paul is saying there's more glory to come. Hope was a theme, uh, is a theme we encountered in Paul's opening prayer of thanksgiving in verse 5, and then more recently in verse 23. And it overlaps with the idea of trust, but also carries with it the, the idea of longing with the expectation of obtainment. Hope, according to Paul, isn't wishful thinking, but a sure disposition of faith in the promises of God. That brings us to verse 28. And as Paul adds another aspect to his apostolic commission, saying, Whom we proclaim, instructing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, so that we may present every man mature in Christ. And notice that Paul uses the word every three times in in this verse. I think it's rendered everyone in the ESV. Giving emphasis to his words regarding the inclusion of the Gentiles and the Christ he proclaims. And what further characteristics of his ministry does he delineate? He proclaims, he preaches, he makes known. He is hardly silent, but continuing to fulfill the word. And this proclamation also involves instruction. The word can also be rendered as warning, admonishing, or exhorting. In other words, Paul doesn't hesitate to say what needs to be said. Furthermore, he also teaches or instructs and more... uh, and more specifically, in all wisdom. Well, what is wisdom? Living skillfully in the fear of God. And when we think about wisdom, we usually think about the book of Proverbs. And when we think about the book of Proverbs, then we think about the fact that Solomon wrote it. And when we think about Solomon writing Proverbs, we think about the fact that he's a king writing to his son, to a prince. And when we think about a prince, it means he's a future king. If he's going to be a future king, then what does he need to do? He needs to learn how to become a king. How does he learn to become a king? By listening to wisdom. Because what does Solomon want his son to do? To grow up, to mature, to be wise. You know, you give a moose a muffin. That's what, that's, this is what Paul wants for every man, but especially to present everyone mature in Christ. Of course, the New Testament teaches us that we are already kings in Christ, but we're also kings in training. And we need to learn to rule ourselves first and foremost. The book of Proverbs is certainly a great aid in instructing along those lines, but so is the rest of God's Word. And this is a feature of Paul's apostolic ministry. And so it continues, it, needs to, it should continue to be a feature of the church's ministry for everyone to grow up to mature in Christ. This word present means to bring in, uh, into one's presence, to stand or to bring to or to bring near. That's the same word Paul used back in verse 22 of what Christ's reconciliation accomplished to present you holy. That's what Christ has done. But now Paul sees his work as presenting mature Christians to Christ. That's the goal of his ministry. This is another aspect of continuing on what Christ has begun. The way in which the ministry of Christ is furthered through the church. And then that leads us into verse 29, what Paul further says about this work. For which also I toil, striving according to the energy of him 
the energizing one in me in power. And Paul's work is toil. It's arduous. It's difficult labor. Uh, It isn't something that's simple, such as turning the stop and slow sign back and forth to direct traffic through a construction zone on the road. No, it's much more thoroughly intensive than that. The word striving or struggling is a term related to athletics, doing one's best, competing, entering a contest, etc. It's the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9.25. So it carries with it connotations of determination and focus and hard work, sacrifice, discipline, and effort. To strive, to struggle in this way is hardly easy. And that's the impression that Paul gives at the beginning of the verse. His efforts are wearisome. But then notice that he says that he's supported by the working of God. The one working in him, in power, giving him strength. And there's, there's a wonderful tension for faith to consider in that, isn't there? As one scholar helpfully writes, Paul does not go about his work half-heartedly, hoping vaguely that grace will fill in the gaps which he is too lazy to work at himself. Nor, however, does he imagine that it is all up to him, to that, that, so that unless he burns himself out with restless, anxious toil, nothing will be achieved. He knows that God's desire is to bring Christians to maturity and that God has called him to have a share in that work. He can therefore work hard without the stressful motivation of either pride or fear. He thus becomes an example of that maturity, both human and Christian, that seeks under God to produce in others. And surely if we are to mature, if we are to present um, as, as those who are mature in Christ then we must understand, we must embrace the apostles' faithful perspective on the suffering and struggle that comes with that pursuit. If we are in Christ, we are part of Christ's body. Then that struggle is an inevitable result. And it shouldn't be one from which we shy away or about which we complain, but rather learn to rejoice in, as did the apostle. You know, the, the experienced athlete learns to embrace the competition, even seeks it out, knowing that it brings out the best in him. Similarly, the seasoned warrior doesn't shy away from the conflict, but knows that his training and experience in battle have prepared him for further encounters with the enemy. And he goes to them readily and confidently. It's, it's good for us to be thinking along these lines and helping our children think in these terms, even as they're in training, as You know, experiences are brought to them at whatever stage they are in life, learning how to deal with the circumstances and difficulties biblically with wisdom. As another author exhorts, the greatest defect in the modern church is its cowardly retreat from the high demands of the Christian faith by seeking refuge in gentle sentiments. Our day is no different from Paul's requiring heroism, daring, and sacrifice from Christians. What is one of the contributing factors to this state of the modern church? Well, a dearth of understanding of the whole counsel of God. Ignorance of the scriptures. Ignorance of the very gospel Paul makes known. The word that is at the heart of Paul's ministry of proclaiming, admonishing, and teaching. We need to know the Bible, especially if we're going to be wise, if we're going to grow up and mature. I suppose there are plenty of things to point to for why we're in the predicament we're in today as a church and society, but certainly high on the list is biblical illiteracy. 
You know, even as our study of uh, biblical opposition to tyrants in Sunday school has revealed, the reformers, those who established the doctrine of the lesser magistrate and understood the doctrine of interposition, they knew the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament. And they knew how to apply it. They understood the maxim of all of God's Word for all of life. And surely a great knowledge of the Scriptures will help us to better understand, or at least be able to better navigate the times of suffering, the tribulations that may come to us in whatever form they may take. Now just think of it this way. Let's consider the model of the Exodus for a few moments and see how it applies to what Paul is saying to Colossians and how it might even apply to our own circumstances. You know, at the Exodus, there is the once and for all sacrifice of the Passover lamb. That's, that, that started the Exodus, the departure from Egypt, and then the subsequent journey to the Promised Land. But Israel had to finish the work that was begun at the Exodus. They had to go into the land, fight the enemies, conquering the cities, etc. And yes, the Lord was with them and sent killer bees ahead of them and fought for them, but the Israelite army still had to uh, go to war. They still had to go and fight Canaanites. But what did Israel experience after they crossed the Red Sea? Tribulation. And what was the main source of that tribulation? Not the Egyptian army, because they were buried in the Red Sea. No, it was the Judaizers within Israel, the ones who wanted to go back to Egypt. Well, because the food was better there. You know, they preferred the comforts of the old life of slavery to the new life of freedom with its attendant challenges. Well, that's basically the same situation for the early church, isn't it? There's the temptation for these young Christians to go back to the old world, back to the sacrificial system that's been fulfilled. But to do so is, well, it's rebellion. It's a rejection of the work of God that he has done in Christ and why Paul is so adamant against the Judaizers, especially in so many of his other epistles. That's also why he wants to encourage these Christians in Colossae, these saints, these men, women, children, who have sanctuary access. And if you have sanctuary access, what do you have? You have the riches. You don't need anything else. You don't need, again, you don't need some type of secret knowledge or something in addition to Christ. You have the riches. You have the abundance. You have the glory. You know, in the ancient world, the mysteries were guarded. The, the riches were guarded. The gold was guarded. In some of our favorite stories, what guards the gold? A dragon, right? Well, Jesus is the dragon slayer. We're also made dragon slayers, according to Paul in Romans. The Holy of Holies was guarded by the cherubim. But the work of Jesus put the cherubim into retirement. They no longer guard the sanctuary. That job's been given to men appointed by Jesus and the church. But all of us, all the saints, have sanctuary access we all have sanctuary privileges, and we shouldn't take that for granted. You know, it's one of our chief ways to do battle, and I, I know you know that because it's been said dozens of times, but again, we must never take it for granted. What's more, we receive more glory when we're here in the sanctuary, don't we? How so? Well, by partaking of the Lord's Supper. You know, we partake of bread and wine, which is, connects us to the creation covenant, but then the elements are also the body and blood of Christ in the new covenant. We partake of Christ. Christ is in us by faith. Christ is in us by the sign and seal. 
The Passover was celebrated in Israelite homes. What's now been revealed in the mystery is that we come in and have dinner with God. And as we take Christ in us, then it becomes more and more visible. The abundance of the glory continues to be manifest in our lives, lived unto Christ in the pursuit of maturity in wisdom according to His Word. And so we go from here. We, we leave the mountain and go into the valleys, into the challenges of daily life and work and relationships, because we must. It's the battlefront to which we're called. The contest in which we compete. And when worlds are being shaken, when societies are shifting, there's inevitably tribulation. But we don't despair. Rather, we rejoice. Because, because we know it, it means that Christ's kingdom is spreading. That His work continued by the church has opportunity to grow. That God's people are being made more complete, more mature in Christ. The promised land, the whole earth, belongs to Jesus our King. It's His. And so we, we go because with the abundance of the glory that He's given, He's giving us strength to go. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we do thank You for Christ's word to the Colossians and the word that it is to us today. May You impress it evermore upon our faith upon our hearts and lives. Indeed, may we grasp more fully our calling in this world, the glory that is ours in Christ, the glory that is ours by the power of the Spirit, and the glory that we look to for eternity to come. Bless us and keep us in our work and labors for you. May we do them to your honor and glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.